we tend to focus on how great our product is rather than what they care about the value. People buy candles not because they want candles, because they need light. So start outside in what they care about and then what you sell in terms of value and what it means to them. I need some traction. You need some traction. Let's get some traction. Hey, what's up, innovators, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and disruptors? This is your Traction Podcast host, Lloyd Lobo. We're a community of over 100,000 people, just like yourself, on a mission to help you get the methods, the money, and the madness to explode your business growth. Featuring stories and tactical advice straight from those who've done it before, like Shopify, Twilio, Asana, and many more. This episode is brought to you by Duplo Cloud, the leading dev and security ops as a service platform. Are you having trouble hiring skilled DevOps engineers? Are you taking months to implement security and compliance? Or maybe you're struggling to migrate your applications to the cloud. Duplo Cloud is a one-stop shop solution for all your DevOps, cloud automation, and compliance needs. From infrastructure provisioning and application deployment to security controls, compliance, certification, and alerts. For more information, visit duplocloud.com. That's D-U-P-L-O-C-L-O-U-D.com. Or get two months free access by contacting info at duplocloud.com. Chandar joining us today. He's the CMO of Coupa, and Coupa is a business spend management leader with more than 10 billion market cap. And prior to Coupa, Chandar was CMO at Marketo. He's a seasoned marketing executive with over 25 years in the space with roles at Badgeville, IBM, Accenture. He's authored and been quoted in more than a thousand articles and a frequent keynote speaker at some of the top conferences. In 2019, he was named the top influential LinkedIn marketing or leaders in marketing. And in 2017, he was named by LinkedIn as one of the top five CMOs in the world to follow. And he's also a strategic advisor to some awesome companies we know, like Freshworks and Gainsight. You've had a very impressive career. Give us your backstory. How did an engineer become one of the top marketers on the planet? I think careers are any career should be at the intersection of DNA and passion. For example, I'm very passionate about being a musician, but my wife reminds me but my DNA is not great at it, whether I sing or what I do. But going back to being an engineer, I think what I realized early in my life is I was an engineer and engineering gave me a great framework-based thinking approach. But early getting out of engineering, I felt that I didn't have the DNA or passion for that kind of piece. And I really wanted to pivot into more on the business area. And so I at 21, I actually went to business school. Typically, people who go to engineering school take a few years, but I said, I'm done with it. I want to go into business school, pivoted there. I always had that DNA and passion for storytelling and being at the intersection of technology and storytelling, art and science, kind of been there in my career. So I took that and, and doing management consulting. And eventually, you were able to find at the right intersection, the calling in life is being a marketer for life. And that's where for the last 22 years, I've done that. And I often say when passion meets profession, you become Michael Jackson. Why do so many startups 
fail at go-to-market fit? Why does this happen? Before we go into what can you do to fix it? I think there's a combination of areas. I think, first of all, it's really at what stage you are. As in, there's a difference between go-to-market fit versus product. People confuse product market fit with go-to-market fit, and those are two different things, right? And product market fit is initially proving that there's a certain set of early adopters who feel that they can. you have a product that's solving a compelling pain for them. But really, you can't take that and make that as go-to-market fit. Go-to-market fit is really about have you achieved enough rinse and repeatability that you know that this is can be scaled to a larger set of customers with the initial set of problems. The bigger challenge companies have in that is, is lack of focus, right? And really, especially when you have a platform company, if you're building a platform, the good news is that you can be applicable to a lot of different use cases. The bad news is that you can be applicable to a lot of different use cases. And a lot of times what happens is that you going, you tried going a mile wider and an inch deep in terms of your attack of how you attack the market and it becomes a problem rather than going an inch wide and a mile deep and really focusing on. So that's the micro effect. And then the macro effect is really about what is happening in markets? Is your category actually being, there's a big wave that's catapulting your category or not? And those are some of the macro effects. But that's what I've seen where operational efficiency meets great timing is when you really succeed from that perspective. Companies like Gainsight who've effectively created a whole new category, right? Customer success effectively is proactive customer support, but they create this movement around customer success before they even had a product and became the leader in that space. No, it's great. Nick's done absolutely terrific job. Creating categories is the most challenging thing in software companies, right? You have to time the market. And you don't want to be Napster educating the market. You want to be Apple monetizing the market, right? So the timing of it is important. And what Nick and team have done really well is they've created a category by building a tribe and really building that community drives category. And how do you create a passionate community of folks that ultimately helps you accentuate the category is a great story. Marketo was a similar story like that. So it's not easy and really big hat to them to go do that. You coined this term speedboat marketing. What is it? If you look at my career, I've worked at small boats, like startups that were pre-10 million at that time was Jamcracker, Badgewell, and then oil tankers like IBM. And then speedboats like Cast Iron was speedboats are companies that are really growing. They've proven their go-to-market fit, and they are between that 20 to $500 billion space, really growing fast in that 30% plus growth. And I've operated in all these three environments and the playbooks you need for a small $10 million less ARR company is very different than an IBM. But then in a speedboat, there's a specific playbook you need in terms of how do you build scale and how do you build rinse and repeatability and how do you build a brand? So that is what I thought about. How would you go take most of the SaaS companies today that are in that speedboat space or the speedboat timeframe and how do you go make a repeatable marketing engine out of that? And that's what I turned it that way. What is your definition of a speedboat? What are some elements that companies need to have speedboat like well, momentum? It starts with first speed, right? Are you being agile and are you growing at that real on a speedboat? You see the ride is fun and exhilarating and it's unpredictable to a large extent and stuff like that, but that's what makes it fun. But are you going fast is the primary criteria. And are you growing at that 30% or higher rate as a private company or a public company? And then are you facing all the challenges of go-to-market scale that almost every one of us face? And how do you go attack it from a marketing perspective? And that's really the angle here. And a lot of people are startups here, startup founders here. And 
the only thing that matters in startups, if you're looking to raise your next round of funding and drive valuation, is speed, right? Because your growth rate comes into effect, your gross margin comes into effect, and uh, those are critical things. And your net customer retention or net revenue retention comes into effect. But speed is the key element. And so many people say they're going to slow down and somebody else takes over. If you don't prioritize speed, and of course, with precision, then you're doomed because you open yourself for somebody else to take over. So let's get into speedboat marketing. What are the key elements of speedboat marketing and how can companies use it to drive growth? Now, first of all, going back to your question on speed, and there was an old quote that I put it on my table that those who win the West are not the ones, we're not the ones with the biggest guns, but those who shot the fastest. It's a good reminder that speed is definitely important in, to, in today's world in terms of innovation speed as well as execution speed, right? But if you look at ultimately, how do you create a marketing engine for that company that's going from that 10 to 100 million and then 100 to 500 million and then that go into a mega brand after that? It, it, the first principle of speedboat marketing is that we have to think about marketing not as a funnel, but you got to think of it as a flywheel. And as an engineer yourself, the flywheel creates a rotational energy. And how do you think of this of the three areas of how do you drive awareness? How do you drive acquisition? And then how do you drive advocacy in a way it's a flywheel that creates that momentum for you from a marketing engine perspective to go forward. So that's kind of the basic essence of it. And then if you thin slice it, we can talk about what do you do in awareness in this stage? What do you do in acquisition? What do you do in advocacy to ultimately make that flywheel as effective and efficient as possible? Let's start with awareness, advocacy, and maybe we'll add the third, add-on and Advocacy, awareness, acquisition, add-on, and advocacy. The four A's around the five flyways. So awareness, acquisition, advocacy, and add-ons. What is a flywheel? Why flywheel versus a funnel? Because people get confused by that. Yeah, because a lot of traditional marketing in B2B over the years has been focused only on the acquisition stages of marketing, which is how do I take top of the funnel? How do you create awareness? How do I create interest? How do I create convert that interest into urgency and then ultimately into deals and help sales close them. But they view that's the end of the effort. That's actually a lot of times start of the effort, start of the customer journey, right? So you have to think about holistically in the life cycle of the customer and how it marketing is impacting rather than the traditional funnel of leads to opportunities to deals, leads to opportunities to deals, et cetera. So that's why the mindset shift is think of it as something that is creating this rotational power across every stage of the customer journey where any experience is a sum total of every interaction that you have and how you can recreate that rotational power as a marketing engine to ultimately make customers successful. In other words, if an existing customer who's happy can influence every new prospect, that makes so much more the efficiency of marketing and how they go drive that. Walk us through the different phases. I think awareness is an interesting thing that in a small company, so here's something, right? If you have, if you're between a 10 to $100 million ARR range, Typically, what you don't have the luxury is you don't have the luxury of doing a lot of TV advertising, or you don't have to have the luxury of being in every billboard in Chicago airport, or that kind of overall generic brand awareness of efforts. So the one word that companies in that stage, in my own experience, what we did at Marketo, what we've done in the early stages of Coupa, what other startups that have advising we've been doing is this idea of brand acquisition. So every brand moment is an acquisition moment. And every acquisition moment can be a brand moment. Just think about it. It's just like brand doesn't live in an, ether, in, a, in an ether right here relative to what your growth acquisition tactics are. 
And a great way to operationalize that is using this concept of educational marketing as a way to build brand. So in other words, rather than just putting a billboard out there saying, hey, here is just what Coupa is or Marketo is, one of the tactics is, can I teach people to earn the right to engage and as a result, build my brand through that strategy and tactic? So simple example of that, right? So we go after CFOs at Coupa and we went after marketeers at Marketo. So one of the early tactics at Marketo that the team had done is that we use educational marketing as a great asset weapon for brand building. So for example, if partnering with the Harvard Business Review, The Economist, or one of those think tanks, and we say, here is the strategic CFO in a rapidly changing world, or tomorrow's marketer presented by The Economist and sponsored by Coupa, that is a content asset. That's an acquisition asset typically people feel, but it can be a great brand asset too. Because then I can go to every CFO in the world with this thing with Economist and say, I'm going to build brand awareness with you about Coupa because I'm teaching you something. I'm not selling you, I'm teaching you. So that idea of using educational marketing as an effective weapon, as opposed to, because you don't have a lot of brand dollars at these early stage companies. And doing that and partnering with the right think tanks with, and also doing it by yourself is a very effective tactic if you do it right. And at Marketo, for example, they wrote their first line of blog before they wrote their first line of code. How do I make people better marketers as opposed to better marketer users? So that mindset of using teaching and making it a brand, and that's how they build a brand. So that kind of idea of brand acquisition is what I've talked about here. Now, at some stage in your growth, it's very important to go from this kind of brand acquisition tactic to more mainstream marketing and advertising like Cooper. We just advertised in the World Series, Formula One and Bundesliga League and all that. But it depends on the stage of your company. How do you shift from this more contextual brand acquisition strategy into a more pervasive strategy? So that's the essence of what I was talking about in that piece. In, in cases where you're educating a market before it even exists, Gainsight did or Marketo yeah. did, you, you have to do that. And that helps you formulate a category. But Nori asked here, you just said you don't want to be Napster educating the market. How do you reconcile that with suggesting we do educational marketing? And I think maybe you can yeah. take that. What I was wanting to say is you wanted to time. Like what Napster did, again, I was the early bird gets the worm, the second mouse gets the cheese. So you have to be timing the market in such a way they're able to monetize when the market is ready for you. No, markets bat last, customers bat last, right? So just because like you're educating people on music doesn't mean they're ready to consume music in a mainstream way, even going back to the online digital music at that time. So my point was companies can spend a lot of time trying to educate on this new category, but they have to be around when the market is ready for mainstream adoption of that category. That was the point I was trying to make in terms of you got to be lucky and you got to have persistence in making sure that any early category gets mature enough that you can monetize it rather than just educating it. That was the point. Awesome. And before we dive into acquisition, like now you've built this brand, you've earned the right to engage, you provide so much thought leadership content. How do you convert that to acquisition? I want to get there. But before that, a blog has now become oversaturated. Everyone has a blog. How do you dive eyeballs to you? What are some new sort of awareness tactics that you're seeing in 2021, 22 that are really taking steam here? Yeah, you got to basically attention, capturing attention is very difficult today, right? And so I think that's when you go into more micro-sliced content than 
larger content, right? And whether it's one or two minute videos or tips on something on content on specifically, how do I improve myself every day rather than some long thought leadership piece, this idea of snackable content, whether it's in videos is very powerful relative to the traditional ways of writing big things, right? From that perspective, I will guide people to read this thing from the B2B Institute that they produced called the 95 to five rule when it comes to brand building. Like a lot of us were doing in software marketing, think about even in brand acquisition, we think about those who want to be in market and I got to go educate these people who are in market and go drive brand that way. But they provide a very refreshing perspective on to, for us to think through what we already knew is that 95% people of, percent of the people you want to build brand with are not in market today. They're tomorrow's customers, not today's customers. So that's why in your brand acquisition strategy, you have to take a longer pole approach to it than just saying, who's in the market? I want to go build brand with who's in market today, right? So you got to think about it more holistically and do it that way. And then some of the tactics around purely educational content, but do it in some of these newer ways of snackable content is a good way for you to do it. If you look at some of the best, most engaged content creators on TikTok and Instagram and see the kind of snackable content they're creating and bring that to LinkedIn, you can learn a lot from that. The question was around, I just saw the question, what was that? It is by the LinkedIn B2B Institute, and it's called the 95-5 rule. It's a really good article to, to read around brand building and why we should focus on tomorrow's customers and brand building as much as those in market today. A lot of people just even still are saying, oh yeah, we spend money on SEO, SEM, all of this stuff. But if people are not searching for you because you're not in market, then how do you educate them? And you've got to push. You've got to push. That's exactly right? right. There's a great line. I think it was one of those earlier advertising lines which says that the TV ad didn't make Mary go to the supermarket. The empty box of cereal did. But when she went to the supermarket, she really, she had, okay, if you had built a brand recognition, she knows that your brand's the first one that comes to mind. So it is building that, contextual attribute awareness with tomorrow's customers. It's very important as much as what we do. Those are in market today. Educating them, building that, uh, getting that social proof, getting the brand rub. Now, see, you've earned the right to educate, the, have a conversation with these people. How do you turn it into acquisition? And a lot of people have that problem. We have a very popular YouTube series now with the traction, we got about 115,000 subscribers. We get eight to 10,000 views. But then how do you now take that and then turn it into acquisition no. without seeming like a spammer? <laughs> Fair enough. I think there's no magical sauce I'm going to offer as opposed to ideas around focus. And then my being the burnt victim on these things. So I think a lot of people on the call today would have done a few things that I'm presupposing. First of all, really crystallize what your onlyness is, which is your core differentiation of why me relative to everybody else. As a simple company, as a smaller company, you're disrupting somebody. But really, is that onlyness really clearly accentuated and people really understand only X can provide, only your company can provide this, nobody else, starting with that. And second, I'm sure you've done this ideal customer profile and, and what to go after. The key thing for me in acquisition in acquisition here is rinse and repeat motions. So as a marketer, one of the most important things we can do in a company scaling from 10 to $100 million is how do you build rinse and repeat motions with the fewest number of plays possible? For example, when I was at Badgewell, we were selling a gamification platform. We could go sell to anybody using for gamification for sales, customer service, employee advocacy, and doing it for support and so many different use cases. And therein lies the peril because you can go try trying to focus on everybody. 
Instead, if you pick the use cases that are two to three at that stage that have the highest propensity to buy and the rinse and repeat is where I think focus is very important as an organization at that stage for us to go do, to go drive that rinse and repeat motion. And the same thing when I was in a startup cast iron, we were trying to go after every integration problem till we realized the best rinse and repeatability was focusing on Salesforce and a few SaaS players to go overdrive integration to that. And that really helped us convert that actual brand awareness into more contextual brand awareness for the people that we want to care about and drive acceleration. The second piece to it is around this idea of people try to create different funnel strategies for it, right? So people have inbound, people have outbound, as we've typically seen inbound coming from marketing and outbound coming in from either sales or ADRs. But one of the newer things to implement in action, just not talk about is the idea called all bound, which is how does sales, marketing, and your SDR function go after the same fish on the same boat and drive the same level of engagement where these target accounts, the best accounts you want to go after, sales and ADRs are going together and marketing is coloring the skies with a favorite brand color of yours, in, in our case, Coupa Blue. But it's one thing to talk about it, but driving the right priorities and the compensation models for these different organizations to make sure that's how you drive lead generation and demand generation is very important for you successful in today's world relative to what's been in the past. Walk us through an example of Allbound as you've utilized at either Coupa or Marketo, because build, writing content is great. You don't want then your, or writing content or being on podcasts or creating snack size videos, whatever it is to create brand awareness. But then once you've earned the right, you don't want your sales team to seem like spammers and destroy your brand. So how That's do you right. leverage Allbound? Give us an example of that Allbound in action. Yeah, so let's break it down, right? So typically, Companies, once you know that you want to go after these set of people, there's three doors of demand that they use. There's an inbound marketing is sourcing some inbound stuff. Then ADRs or your SDR organization is doing some outbound that they're calling some set of accounts. And then your sales organization is, in, is independently responsible for some sort of pipeline generation for some sort of accounts. But invariably, there's no harmony in that because each one is going after a separate set of accounts. So in this idea of all bound would be, first of all, if you take, if you are to create 100 opportunities to go drive pipeline, there's say 30 opportunities come from, or 30, 40 opportunities come from your marketing inbound. So people are finding you. Now in an enterprise, that ratio is in, in a mid-market, you probably have a different velocity engine, maybe 70 comes from that. But let's just hypothetically assume an enterprise business, 30% is coming in from that. Then rather than saying for the other 70%, ADRs, you go find 30% or sales, you go find 30% of opportunities. Together, we're going to go find target those target accounts for those 70% of opportunities where sales, marketing, and ADRs are collectively compensated to open the door to go find pipeline for that. That's the all-bound model rather than driving independent courses of demand generation between sales, ADRs, and marketing. So let's assume that one of the target accounts you want to go after is Procter & Gamble, okay? And you want to go after the Procter & Gamble. You feel that you have one of the high, one of the higher propensity to buy is for what you offer. Then in the all bond model, then the salesperson works with the ADRs to do account enrichment, first of all, on all the personas, target personas that matter to go drive, first of all, what's the right contacts in the accounts that we want to do. Salesperson reaches out to the executives in the account, ADRs in parallel can reach out to some of the practitioners in that account. And marketing's job at the same time is whether it's in digital or whether it's in field marketing programs, 
is providing the air cover here to hit them these same accounts in these late stages too. So collectively, all three are focusing on Procter & Gamble on the personas, marketing, sending them through content, either through digital or through direct mail or field marketing programs. ADRs are prospecting, sales is calling, but it's all focused together and opening the door at that account. That's the idea. So now let's dive into advocacy. What's, what are some elements you've implemented to go from, you got, you've built great awareness and you've figured out a way now to drive qualified leads and you're closing them. How do you turn your customers into advocates? And I think 95, 99% of the companies are not deliberate about this. They don't know how to do it. They get word of mouth and they get some referrals, but they're not really deliberate about turning their customers into advocates. But I think that's the problem, right? I think, so first of all, there has to be the upside down. You got to flip the advocacy equation here. The word advocacy is being misused as customers being advocates of your brand. And the way you think about it is how do you become advocates of your customer's success? So the hero in the story, and if you're telling a story here, the hero in the story is the customer, right? So if you flip the funnel here, so one is to say that, hey, this customer says our products are great and it gives us great ROI. There's a TCO, 67% reduction in TCO. There's a great ROI, got ROI in six months, et cetera. That's all great. But if you flip the script here and say, my advocacy story is to showcase the success of my customer in their organization to drive transformative change. And that's how I'm going to build my advocacy story outside in from that perspective rather than inside out. Then you start building this thing about creating a community and a tribe where you're showcasing their success. And everybody says, I want to be like Mike using the Michael Jordan thing. And I want to essentially have the success they do. And that's how you build that. So at Coupa, I'll give you the example, right? One thing for us is to build an advocacy story. We go after spend management professionals as personas that we sell to. Is one thing for us is to go to say advocacy stories where we say that here are what they think about Coupa software. And we've driven great value, which we have, and do that. But we don't stop there. The starting point for us is we launched this thing called Spend Setters a year ago. Spend Setters. And our advocacy program is focused on how each one is a trendsetter in their respective organization to drive that. At Marquero, the marketing nation, our tribe was built around advocating for them and their success rather than them advocating for us and our success. So if you want to be at cause and not at effect here, if you start with the story on how they are the hero and advocating for them, the effect can be how they will eventually advocate for you to build that flywheel of them influencing your prospects. And it's got to be authentic, but it's got to focus on showcasing their success rather than them showcasing yours. Now, how do you bridge that to add-ons? You talked about add-ons. What, what are you referring to when you talk about add-ons? You've got great advocates. Add-on, I would say, is a step before that. And this is the way I would think about it, right, Lloyd, is that if you see today, a lot of us in B2B marketing today, 80% 80, 80 of the spend has been an acquisition, right? Very few of us at earlier stages, take a programmatic effort to go after cross-sell marketing and how do you go market add-on products to your customers in a very thoughtful way so that if you're not selling the entire platform up front, you have additional capabilities to go sell to that customer. So my point on that is marketing teams should invest on driving more balancing the boat on the life cycle of marketing than just acquisition marketing. In other words, the question to folks on the phone today or on the call is, 
how many of you have dedicated marketers in your organization to do adoption marketing, which is, hey, customers have bought a set of products. Are we marketing them on all the capabilities that they've bought so that they maximize adoption? How many of you have marketers focused on cross-sell marketing? How do you go attack an install base in a thoughtful way to go to increase expansion? And how many of you have marketers focused on advocacy marketing in terms of marketing their success? So that was my point. Balancing the boat and investment, just don't focus on the funnel and acquisition marketing. Increase the investment so that you get more add-on business. Going back to the point you made, Lloyd, dollar-based next expansion. Dollar-based expansion is very important in the SaaS business, but you have to not make this only a sales effort. You have to have marketing providing the engine to go help that and make it happen. That was the point. Now, say you've done all this really well. We talk about mega brands here. What is needed to turn your startup into a mega brand? In a sense, Marketo is a mega brand. Coupa is a mega brand. How do you turn your startup into a mega brand? What are the key characteristics? I think, first of all, you got to start with a problem. You got to start with a product that solves a compelling need. And if I would give you, let me give you the Einstein way of, maybe I'll give you a simple formula. Since you like frameworks, a simple formula for how do you do that, right? If you look at a great mega brand, it has E equals MC squared. And I'm not Einstein. There's no Einstein in me. But any mega brand, excellent company has three things. First, the M, the category better be mandatory right? You're not selling a discretionary nice to have. It's a budget line item in somebody that you're selling. So you have to get to that stage that it's a mandatory spend rather discretionary spend. That's the M. The C, the first C is competitive advantage. So if the category is mandatory, you better have innovation and value that you're delivering, that you have competitive advantage. You can be Coke or Pepsi, not RC Cola in your marketplace. Think about that. And the third C is the culture I can really talk about that and is what is really important in terms of building a, an organization focused on people and meritocracy and, and authenticity. So that combination equals MC Square can catapult you in, into a mega brand organization. That's been kind of, if you have to put the Twitter headline into whether it's Marketo or Cooper or any of these things, that's the way I would capture it. Is it a must that you must look to create a category or define a category or can you be successful without it? Because it ties to your mandatory need comment as well there, right? Yeah. Creating new categories in my experience is very challenging, man. Okay. Somebody wants to go E equals MC squared again. I'll do that. Let me do that again. So since the question was excellent company E equals M mandatory category. So marketing automation was a mandatory category. So then it's a question of, do I choose Coke or Pepsi? So the second C was competitive advantage. You better be Coke or Pepsi, not RC Cola in that market. And the third C was culture that I talked about. So just going back to the previous question. Going back to this thing around category creation. Or even like owning a category to build, become this mega brand and get the swarm of leads. Like you said, the early bird catches the worm and the next one gets the cheese, right? Second mouse gets the cheese. That is a macro effect of timing and markets. You have to be, you have to have persistence to do that. It's not an easy exercise. A lot of the SaaS products today are new wine, old bottle. It's not that you are recreating a category, that you're providing a better option for an existing category. Look at salesforce.com to Siebel. Siebel kind of created that CRM category, but was really Salesforce offered the next kind of next generation of software for it. Most application software are in that new wine, old bottle, I am going redefining category or I'm creating the next generation of that category. 
very few products actually catapult into new category creation. And that analyst names categories, companies don't, right? And so you have to have the influence of the analyst community and it's a long-term play. That's a five to seven year play in B2B for you to actually cement new categories. It's not easy, right? So if you pick one, then you need that macro influential effect of the analyst community co-driving that and doing it. You can't do it alone as an individual company. And you need Definitely. an ecosystem of partnerships and all these things to do that. ERP category, for example, it took a lot of years to cement it. I wrote a post before I joined Coupa. I wasn't interviewing with Coupa at the time. After I left Marketo, what kind of company do I want to join? And I wrote this post. It's on LinkedIn. I'll post it. It's called the Einstein way of finding your next company. So that's, I, and when I look backwards, you can only connect the dots looking backwards, right? When I connect the dots looking backwards, all the three categories, I'll talk about Coupa. Excellent company in my mind, five years in, mandatory category. Every company makes money, every company spends money. So business spend management is a mandatory category. Competitive advantage. We have, we are the coke of our market if you look at any external validation from customers or analysts. And then the culture is probably the most proudest part of it. We have driven an authentic employee-driven supportive culture there. Not enough people talk about culture. And I think culture is foundational to building a great company, right? And I think there's a quote that the culture eats strategy for breakfast. We'll dive into some of the strategic things, but it's refreshing to hear a speaker, a leader like yourself talk about culture. And there's a lot of stuff going on right now in the world with the recent better.com. People are filming things. There, there are great examples, public great examples of bad culture. But what does culture mean to you and how do you build a great infectious culture? Like maybe describe that at Coupa. So for us, and I give credit to our CEO, Rob Bernstein, from the early days, because in this case, cu culture is a trickle-down effect, right? And in Coupa parlance, I'll explain why it is a trickle-up effect. I'll explain why. But, but really, it's cemented with the top and, and the core belief systems and a set of core values that every company has core values. Every company does. But do we live it and breathe it every day? Do we drive every action that we do through that set of core values, whether it comes to promoting people, meritocracy, decision-making and stuff like that? That's when institutionalizing it and operationalizing it in your daily actions, it becomes challenging for companies. So let me give you an example of what we mean by our, some of our fabrics of our culture, right? So we believe in this idea of supportive leadership, service-driven leadership, and not top-down leadership. So our org charts at Coupa, if you go to our even leadership page and our org charts, is upside down. The CEO sits in the bottom of the chart, and then you have the different branches. If you look at the tree metaphor, the root is the, the leadership, and then you have different branches, whether it's sales or marketing, and then the different leaves within that, within different people in that. So we have this mindset, the job of a leader is to be supportive, not manage. You don't manage, you support. And as a result, your idea there is that how do I eliminate hurdles? How do they showcase their success? And how do I wake up to serve my employees, the servant leadership model? And breathe that every day in the way your org chart is set up, how you talk about it at the company. So I don't talk about, I manage people, I support people. So that kind of thinking that gets fostered into your daily actions is what defines a successful culture. It's one thing to say it but you operationalize it. You're operationalizing that purpose in an organization. And that's really what I'm proud of in the organization. Very credit to our CEO and all the people who've done that from that perspective. 
What advice do you have for founders because who's, who create this foundation in the early days and maybe the first five, 10 people you hire set the foundation for the rest. And with each hire you make, they could have a significant impact on culture, especially executive leadership. What are the key things you look for when hiring leaders in the company so your culture doesn't go south? What you don't want is these two sides to it, right? You don't want group thinking and people who look exactly like you, think exactly like you to have group think and not have diversity in an organization. That's the danger to it. You don't want that. Having said that, you want people who have a set of core beliefs and those who have a set of attributes that you value in an organization. And so that when you go through the process and when you think about it, you have to, my, my guidance is over-communicate what's important to you and use it in your daily actions, whether it's in your hiring, how you promote people, how do you make decisions in corporate meetings. As a leader, over-communicate that so that it becomes a fabric of everyday existence for you rather than something in, in, in sitting on a wall in a room saying, here are three culture points, right? Every company has that, and that's the problem. You have to bring it into your daily, weekly, hourly discussion motions. And I can't think of the number of times that we have three core values in organizations for the last 11 years. We have ensuring customer success, focus on results, and striving for excellence. My CEO has probably used that a million times, counting in, in, in the thing about how we drive our daily decisions based on that. So I think that's where my guidance would be. It's one thing to think about it. It's another way to live and breathe it every day in your actions. And how do you over-communicate that to your employees? What are some best practices you've seen for communication? Because communication is number one, right? Like the job of the leader is to build, inspire, and motivate a team. And delivery is the lagging indicator in that equation. And it's really important to constantly communicate the vision to excite and inspire people. It's not like a one and done thing where people do it at a town hall and forget it. You got to do it day in, day out. So I'll give you two frameworks. First principles of communication would be being at the Venn diagram of what you want to say and what people care about. So when I'm talking to a board, am I on the Venn diagram of what I want to say and what does a board care about? And I talk to the CFO, what do I want to say? If I go talk about all the aspects of creative marketing, does the CFO care about that? Which is how we are driving some tangible pipeline and deal sizes, et cetera. When I'm talking to my team, am I talking about what they care about rather than high fluidy marketing things to how does that manifest in themselves into their specific daily objectives and what they care about for their success? So operating at that framework every day of what you want to say and what they care about is a great guidance for me in my daily actions of communication. And it's all of these different levels. Some of the great haters are very good at one-to-one, one-to-few, one-to-many, and one-to-community communication. How do you nuance that? So that framework gives you a good perspective. At least for me, it served as a good guiding principle every day. Am I operating at that Venn diagram of what I want to say and what I care about? Now, as a leader, I would say the second thing as a CEO, if you're on the call, is it's a very small company. You can say many things a few times in your meetings. I can say, I'm doing X, I'm doing Y, I'm doing Z, all these things, and you can repeat it. As a company grows larger and larger, you got to say a few things many times so that it gets into people. Going back to my core values, using those three ideas and over-communicating that again and again as you go from 100 to 1,000 to 5,000 to 30,000 people as the company goes into a mega brand, right? 
saying, going from his thing, doing from the picture was a few things many times, going into, or rather many things, few times, into a few things many times. That's how the chart would change. And be very conscious about repeating that. I think it would be key to success there. Few things many times, and it also ties to inch wide and a mile deep versus a mile wide and an inch deep. Say a few things many times. People need transparency and proactive transparency. They want to keep hearing the same thing over and over again. Otherwise, they think that mission or purpose is dead. If you don't talk about it, they think that there's no progress, right? Yep. And the same holds true for marketing messages. And going back to this 95-5 rule, you're, yeah. you're sending that same brand message so that people keep hearing it. And the 95% people who are not ready to buy or not in market to buy, you're top of mind for them. You're effectively yeah. doing the same thing, right? Yeah. In, so the biggest, in, one of the bigger mistakes we've done in marketing is we get bored of our own messages earlier. So yeah. we run a campaign for four months and says, okay, let's go ready to the next campaign. And then we'll go get the next campaign. That's dangerous because you have hit it so many times, but the person on the other hand, has seen it probably once, right? So it's many to one rather than one to many. You have to look at it from the other angle. So it absolutely does. When we are running campaigns, one thing to keep ourselves honest in marketing is let's give it the time. If it's a good one, at least it needs a year to get democratized across your prospect base and your brand awareness things so that you have the time to cement that rather than you saying, okay, six months done, I'm going to go to the next campaign. Absolutely, it does few things many times is very valid in external communication as much as internal communication. You're building a marketing team. What are the key roles and skills needed when you're first starting out? You join a company, let's say you've joined, you work at companies sub 10 million, you've joined companies sub 50, sub 100, you've been at IBM. What are the key roles and skills needed when you're building a new marketing team? Okay. So it very depends on stage of company. So $10 million or below, it's different than 10 to 100 and 100 to billion. I'll try to contextualize it in a generic sense and try to go do it, right? So if I go into an organization as a CMO, I think the most important thing is you cannot be a good CMO or a great CMO unless you have great leaders in three very key positions in the company in your organization. So if I take the Coupa parlance as I'm sitting at the bottom and I have leaders on top supporting people, not managing them, I'm going bottom up in my org chart here, not top down, is you need a very good CEO of strategic and product marketing, strategic marketing and product marketing. You need a very good CEO of that. You need a very good CEO of growth marketing and who's driving, converting these go-to-market things into programs and and across channels, whether it's top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, field marketing, all those areas. And you need a very good CEO of corporate marketing. So having those three pillars established, and I'm talking about companies post 10 million going forward. I'm not talking about the pre-10. I'll talk about that in a different context. But as to be an effective CMO, you can't, somebody told me this advice many years ago, you cannot be a great CMO unless you have these three great pillars. And so that's really the focus for you to start and saying, do I have the right leadership in those three areas to ultimately build that orchestration, the engine that comes together to make it happen. And so that's why I talk about the CMO as the C, the M and the O as three different letters, we can talk about it. But one of the key part of the letters is the O, the orchestration, which is how do you bring these elements of product and segment marketing 
growth marketing, which is called demand generation, and then corporate marketing, which is all the air cover in terms of your PR, comms, brand, events, et cetera. And how do you build harmony and orchestration across these three areas is very important as an organization. Dive into the key elements or key traits to be successful in each of those roles. So what is corporate marketing? What are two or three things that you need to be successful? Growth marketing, maybe a little more. And then product marketing you talked about. Yeah, I think, first of all, any marketer, marketing is the science of storytelling, right? So it brings both the art and science together. So every marketer at heart needs to have that idea of whether it's internal, external storytelling into their be harnessed the skill of doing that's very important today, regardless of how much data and all these other pieces too. That's really important. Am I telling what people care about, which is what I'm saying? But specifically going to those areas, in product segment marketing, it's really about, hey, do I have a do I really understand strategically where the market is going? And really understand one element of go to market, how do I find the fastest path to the most dollars for the sales organization? And how do I guide them with the right kind of go-to-market motions for that? That's a good, the strategic skill set for that. The second is the positioning skill set in terms of, am I able to crystallize my onlyness and my differentiation in the storytelling and do that from that standpoint and create the sales enablement tools so that ultimately sales can consume what you got rather than just saying, yeah, whatever marketing is, I'm going to go do my own stuff making it consumable, the consumable skill, the strategic skill, the consumable skill. And then more and more, it's the analytical skill of, can I go be more data-driven and go drive that from that perspective? In corporate marketing, the biggest thing is for you to, how do you tell a brand story that connects with the rest of it rather than being an ether here? And some of the great brands, even at IBM, the corporate marketing guys told a story called Smarter Planet. Beautiful story, brilliant IBM brand, Smarter Planet. But the reality to what the rest of the organization doing in the product marketing side is such a chasm there. So really able to tell a brand story that is connected to the rest of what the capability is in a software company and doing it in a very consumable, memorable way is that storytelling is a big thing on the corporate marketing side. And growth marketing, as we talked about, it is becoming a lot of the science of marketing at Marketo. We took it from a soft science to a programmatic science, but really understanding being data-driven and understanding where are the best tactics and strategies I can try to go to the pipeline is a good skill set for them to have. Right? So. Now, when is the right time for a company to be a CMO? You've joined all kinds of companies at 10 million, at 50, at 100. When is the right time to bring a CMO on? Because I see early stage startups that I talk to, maybe a couple million in revenue, four or five billion. They want to bring a CMO, but what they really need is somebody to run demand because yeah. their biggest suffering is leads. I think. When you're ready to really make money as an organization, the real important need becomes how do you orchestrate marketing across all strategically at the market level, at what you're doing in pipeline, what you're doing in brand, and all these things need to work cohesively and orchestrated is the right time for that perspective. So here's the way I would practically say it, right? If your immediate goal is, A, I got to get from five to 15 million and demand gen is my primary problem, then you can hire a VP of marketing who does really good work in growth marketing and demand gen and those pieces, right? Once you've established rinse and repeat motion that you know that, hey, I have a set of 100, 150 customers that have get tangible value from my product or capability, 
is when then you need to go drive this engine at scale across your brand, across what you do in your sales enablement, your sales organization is growing larger and what you do in your pipeline, that's when to bring that CMO in. When you're ready to scale, you've nailed it, now you need to scale it, right? You got to nail it, nail your go-to-market before you scale it. So do you've nailed your go-to-market, at least they're instant, now you got to scale it. That's the right time to do it, right? From my perspective. So that is, it depends on organizations when you reach that 20, $30 million ARR to get a CMO that really knows that playbook of scale. You can get CMOs in early organizations that are helping you position or helping you drive some demand, but really helps you understand the entire playbook of scaling an engine. Because a lot of people think that I got to hire a chief revenue officer when I'm ready to scale. It's actually more important to hire a chief marketing officer when ready to scale, because that's what's really going to guide you to the path of the least assistance for the most dollars from that perspective. If you are not ready for a CMO, how would you think about who to hire? Who are top two or three people you're bringing to hit that first one or two million in ARR? If you are starting a company today. Let's There's say. two profiles, right? So I'll eliminate the profile of getting somebody. So typically marketers, just like you know. NFL coach comes in either being an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator. They have some background coming in to be a head coach. So typically you're going to hire a product, mar- you're going to hire a head of marketing who's got a product marketing DNA, grew up early in my career with that, or somebody who's got a growth marketing demand generation DNA. And I would say, depending on your business and depending on the strengths of your founders, you got to make the right thing. So if you're trying to create a new category and your founders, really good. Your CEO is very good in positioning and building the analyst relation. Denny Grugret, a growth marketing person who's responsible mainly for driving the demand, augmented by the strengths of your founders in terms of driving that early positioning and stuff like that. Vice versa. If you want really the positioning battle and the founders are engineers, they don't have necessarily the great market positioning skills that you need with the analyst community and shaping the market in terms of your customers and prospects, I would hire somebody with that messaging and positioning background. So that's the way I would think about it based on the the personality and the DNA of the founding organization. You have this great quote that I heard in one of your interviews, people buy candles, not because they like candles. Tell us more. Some of the challenges that we have as software companies or product companies is that we tend to focus on how great our product is rather than what they care about the value. People buy candles not because they want candles, because they need light. So start outside in what they care about and then what you sell in terms of value and what it means to them. And that's why product marketers is the wrong term. It really should be value marketers. And this classic example a friend of mine gives me is that I go to Home Depot looking for a shovel, but really I go to Home Depot wanting to dig a hole. The real thing is, what's the value? I want to dig a hole, so I need a shovel. So the the less we talk about the shovel, the more about what you're trying to solve the hole in this case. That's why I gave this point about start outside in terms of value in your problem rather than talking about the product. Who's your favorite movie actor and what are some marketing lessons I guess you can learn from them? <laughs> yeah, are you talking Hollywood or are you talking Bollywood? Which one are you talking either, about? Either. Oh, man. One of my favorite movies is The Shawshank Redemption. And it really teaches me the art of storytelling and how do you capture through emotion. And we have to forget that marketing is not about go-to-market notion. It's about emotion. And if you can grab emotion, and that always leads me that it really hits me here. And it keeps me really honest from that perspective. And Bollywood, I grew up in India. So I grew up in South India. So one of these guys that most people don't know about, Rajnikanth was a big movie star. So I always learned about the art of effective storytelling and how do you exactly deliver as the guy there and do it from that standpoint.
there was a legendary line from one of his movies where he says that my way is my own way or something. It's a very famous line. But the marketing lesson for marketers is that everyone has a personalized journey. So you want to use individualized, personalized way of how to go engage people rather than having a generic way. So that was my fun lesson in terms of the lesson from him in that line. What are the tool set that you recommend to marketing leaders or companies, startups? What tools do you guys use from in your, what's yeah, in your marketing stack? Stage. So if I look at the acquisition funnel, we use, I'll go into categories. We use products for ideal customer profile and for what we call intent-based marketing early and do that for account-based marketing. So we use a product called demand-based. We are using products for dynamic personalization. By the way, I'm not a stockholder in any of these companies. So <laughs> using products for dynamic personalization of web of your landing pages, like Intel, we're using conversational AI products. We obviously use Salesforce. We use Marketo as our demand engine. We have used Engageo for sales insights. And then we use a set of products on the advocacy side for, for in the past, I've used Inflotive for driving advocacy and also others in, for events, for example, we have a couple of products that we're using for events as we're looking at, et cetera. So there's a awesome. stack of nine to 10 products that typically the, the average marketing stack today is probably eight to 10 products for any company. And some people use more than that. So. What are some books you recommend? What's on your shelf? You got a ton of books. So I'm assuming you read. And I see so Ogilvy in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good, somebody gave me a marketing. But I would say, look, if anybody wants to leave this call of the one book as a marketer, you have to read, right? And it's not from now or today. It's Differentiate or Die. Al Rees and Jack Trout. It was in the 80s, and it really set up this idea of positioning. Marketing was viewed more of a brand exercise, and they were the first guys who came and said marketing is about winning the battle for the mind, and they coined the term positioning and why you should differentiate. Everything from water to airlines need to differentiate their offering, and how do you do that is it's a very good, insightful thing. Of course, it was written for that era, but that fundamentals of thinking is great. Differentiate or die. That's the book. First principles don't really change, right? Some of the fundamentals from decades ago are still hold true. That being said, what is one piece of unconventional advice that people don't take enough? That's interesting. Here's what I would say. In today's world, given what's happening, the traditional approach that we have taken is do solution selling. We go to a customer. As a marketer, we help sales to say that I understand your problem. I know this is what your challenge is, and I'm going to offer solutions to go solve your problem. It's a traditional way of selling, you know, go from product-based selling even to solution-based selling. An unconventional approach would be to do provocation-based selling. There's a great Jeffrey Moore article on this to check it out, provocation-based selling, where you are provocating the customer with all empathy, of course, and saying, if you didn't have me, here's all the issues that you would have. And that's why you need me. A different posture, look at the posture. One is solution-based saying, you have this problem I'm trying to solve you, versus provocation-based, which is without me, here's all the challenges. Think about that approach and how do you operationalize it? It could be something interesting for you. Where can we find you on social? Where are you active? I'm Chandar, uh, Chandar P, C-H-A-N-D-A-R, the letter P at Twitter. And you can go to Chandar P at LinkedIn. And I look forward to uh, engaging. And thank you for having me, Lloyd. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Traction Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. And you can find all the information mentioned in today's episode 
attractioncough.io. That's T R A C T I O N C O N F.io.